You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Greetings, everyone. Before we get going with today's episode, I want to do a shout out for a podcast that I have been listening to that I think you will find interesting. It's the History of Vikings, hosted by Noah Tatsnar and available wherever you get your podcasts. The show features conversations with leading historians about Vikings, Norse mythology, and the history of medieval Scandinavia. Recent topics covered include King Harold Bluetooth, Viking Age ghosts and zombies, weapons and battle tactics, the Vikings of Russia, and most recently, an interview about Viking Yule, the Norse winter holiday. Subscribe to the History of Vikings wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part two in our series on explorer Freya Stark. This episode will focus on her search for the mysterious Valley of the Assassins. Two quick notes. First, I want to make a correction regarding something I said in our last episode. I mentioned the post-World War I UN mandates surrounding the Middle East. Well, our listeners quickly pointed out that that was a mistake. The United Nations wasn't formed until after World War II. These mandates were established by the League of Nations, which is the precursor to the United Nations. Sorry for that mistake. And second, there is a map of Stark's journey on our website, explorerspodcast.com. Check that out if you want to see the route of our explorer. Okay, that is it for notes. On with the show. Last time, we left Freya Stark in London at the end of 1928. She had returned from her expedition in the Middle East, a journey through the lands of the Secret of Druze in Syria. She had been successful by using her smarts, charm, and ingenuity. There were no guns or threats involved. The journey had provided Stark with a blueprint of how to proceed in the future. She found that traveling into the interior of the region was not as difficult as some had believed. The key was to travel light and have a good guide who knew the locals, their customs, and the landscape. Add in someone to wrangle the pack animals, and you were good. Stark's ability to communicate was a key to her style of travel. She had found that while she was discovering the people she encountered, they were discovering her as well. People liked to talk to her. They loved to find out where she was from, what her life was like, and what she was doing. Human beings are curious by nature, and once someone got comfortable with Stark, she could unravel their story. Freya Stark was able to do this with not just her ability to communicate, but with her immense patience and courtesy. She learned the local customs, figured out how things were done, and respected those parameters. Also, she didn't act imperious or look down on these people or how they lived. In fact, she lived with the native people as one of them. Stark's small size, she was only about 5 foot 1 or 155 centimeters tall, 
disarmed people, and instead of reacting with hostility, they responded with curiosity. All of this had gone against common thought. People said that Druze and Bedouins or whomever were thieves and bandits, and they would rob and kill anyone they caught in their lands. But Stark had found that was overstated. Yes, there were real dangers, but for the most part, people welcomed her and were protective of her. Stark had come back to Europe a different person than a year earlier. She was more confident in her abilities. Her Arabic was better, and she was picking up Persian. And she found that the specter of her domineering mother had waned. She was now a successful writer and had a steady income. She no longer had to believe her mother's assertion that she needed to find a husband to be successful. Also, it ate at her that she had wasted so much time in her life trying to make others happy. She was 35 years old and wanted to experience the world before she got too old. Regarding her writing, Stark began to publish articles about her travels and the Middle East with Cornhill Magazine, a literary journal. She published under a pseudonym so that when she went back to the Middle East, the French, who she had been highly critical of, wouldn't realize who she was. Regarding her work, people respected it. Stark was commended for the accuracy of her writings and her insights. So the big question for Stark was what to do next, and that takes us back to her previous journey, where she had learned about a secret cult that had terrorized the Middle East in the 11th and 12th centuries. These were the assassins, and the more she learned about them, the more she thought them a fascinating subject worth investigating. Let us talk a bit about the Order of Assassins. The assassins were a Nizari Ismaili order, which is a branch of Shia Islam. They were founded in 1090 by Hassan i Saba. Alamut Castle in northern Persia was their headquarters. The order expanded and came to control many forts and outposts, but the backbone of their power would be centered around six major fortresses in the mountains of Persia and the Levant. The Levant, by the way, is a region surrounded by Saudi Arabia, the Gaza Peninsula, Turkey, and Iran, aka Persia. The term assassin is reportedly derived from the word hashish, a psychoactive drug processed from cannabis which is widely grown in parts of the Middle East. The drug was supposedly administered to new recruits in secretive ceremonies, these newcomers swearing fealty to the order's rulers. These assassins were then said to use the drug to get themselves in a frame of mind to commit their murders. What, if any of that, is true, we really don't know, but it all added to the mystery of the order. No matter, the assassins were ruled from Alamut Castle by an anonymous leader called the Old Man of the Mountain. In their existence, the Order of Assassins used the killing of their enemies as a way to expand and protect their power and influence. Also, they committed these killings as parts of alliances with other rulers or simply for profit. Hundreds of people, maybe thousands, were killed by the assassins, including religious and political figures. One of the most famous incidents was when an assassin tried, but failed, to kill King Edward I of England while on a crusade. Some believe that the Knights Templar were modeled after the assassins with their secret bonding rituals and commitment to political manipulation and interference. The assassins wore white robes with red turbans. The knights wore white tops with a red cross on the chest. In their time, the assassins were greatly feared. In fact, that fear was often all it took to get things done. There is one story where a ruler woke up to find an assassin's dagger stuck in the floor of his bedroom, the clear message being, play along or else. Anyhow, the assassin's downfall was the arrival of the Mongols in 1253 under Haluga Khan. Alamut Castle fell in 1256 and Lamsar, their largest fortress, a year later. Other strongholds fell in the coming years. The last recorded activity of the assassins dates to 1275. The Mongols either occupied or destroyed the assassin fortresses. 
Marco Polo wrote about the assassins, introducing them to mainstream Europe, and they were frequently depicted as these mysterious boogeymen lurking in the shadows, waiting to strike. And that takes us up to 1928. Freya Stark was researching all of these wild stories, and she found that the locations of the assassin strongholds were known, save for one, Lamsar Castle. Other strongholds, such as Alamut Castle, were difficult to reach. And so the Order of Assassins and their castles, Stark decided, was the perfect story for her. And things were falling into place that would allow her to conduct such an adventure. Her finances were in better shape, as some investments were giving her a steady but modest income, and her friend, Herbert Young, informed her that he would be giving her his house in Oslo, Italy, in his will. Oslo was a beautiful location not far from Venice. It would be her sanctuary for years to come. Also, Young would allow Freya's mother, Flora, to move into the home. She was now happily running a factory in the town. Nothing, however, was perfect. Her late sister's three children, two boys and a girl, were stuck in Gennaro with their father, the hated Count Mario. The man tried to guilt Freya into coming to Gennaro and taking care of the children, but as much as she hated leaving her niece and nephews with the man, she was not going to do such a thing. Just visiting Gennaro would cause her stress levels to skyrocket and she would get sick. And besides, it was her life to do what she chose, and she was going to travel and write. So, before heading back to the Middle East, Freya went to Canada to visit her father, who now had a farm just across the border from Idaho, where he grew fruit, primarily apples. Robert Stark was 75, and the stroke he had suffered two years earlier had slowed him down considerably. Freya spent four months with him, and in this time, she would write a story for Cornhole Magazine about life in Canada. Freya enjoyed her time with her father, but to be honest, all of her life she would resent her mother and her father. Her mother was easy to paint as the bad guy. She had done so many things to alienate and denigrate Freya. Her father was different. She resented him for the things he had not done. He had essentially abandoned and ignored both Freya and her sister. They wrote letters to each other and he provided for them in some ways, but at other times he simply neglected them. He let them grow cold in the winter. He let Mario invade their lives, even marry Vera. Freya despised that. Anyhow, after Canada, Freya went to London for more research on the subject of the assassins before heading to Baghdad in October of 1929. Baghdad is located on the Tigris River in modern-day Iraq. It had been one of the jewels of the Arab world, but in Stark's time, it was run down. Freya noted that nearly every day she could look out on the river and see a body in it. Baghdad and Iraq were ruled by King Faisal, a Bedouin, with the support of the British. The city and much of the Middle East was a wild and volatile mix of people, cultures, and issues. The Kurds and Assyrian Christians wanted independence. Sunni and Shia Muslims were often at odds. Egyptians were grumbling about British rule. Palestine was a hotbed of intrigue. Oil and trade through the Suez Canal were critical issues for the region. In Baghdad, Stark stayed with an Arab friend and spent time visiting the shops, markets, and sites of the city. She also took Persian lessons and had even learned a smattering of Turkish and Kurdish. One of the things about Freya Stark was that she didn't have a problem mixing with the local people. In fact, it was a strength of hers. She didn't judge others and found value in learning the customs and traits of the local people. However, her actions were not seen in a good light by many of the Europeans living in the city, especially when they found out that she was actually living in the prostitute quarter of Baghdad. One English woman said she was, quote, lowering the prestige of British womanhood, end quote. Stark didn't really care where she lived. Still, once someone was found murdered next door, the police encouraged her to leave. Even then, she didn't depart until a health official showed up at her door and begged her to vacate the premises. She found a new place in the home of a Syrian Christian shoemaker. 
As with her time in Damascus, Freya went on outings whenever possible. She persuaded a Muslim friend to take her to a mosque, which was not allowed. She went on a falcon hunt with the local tribe. She met sheikhs and chieftains. One of the highlights of her time was a visit to the stone arch of Tesaphon, also called Takasra. This is a Persian monument dating back to between the 3rd and 6th centuries. It is really quite amazing and I put a photo of it on our website because it's so cool. It has this huge arched hall open on the facade side and rises up 121 feet or 37 meters. It is the largest man-made freestanding vault constructed until modern times. Stark would not just visit the monument, she would climb it, much to the astonishment of everyone. As always, many people wondered if Stark was a spy, as she usually had a camera with her and asked question after question after question. Another thing Stark did at this time was to study Islam and the Quran. She figured that if she was going to live and travel with the Muslim people, she should study their faith so she could understand their customs and viewpoints. She was surprised to find so many links to the Old Testament in Islamic teachings, and she was pleased that she could learn so much about Islamic traditions and culture through her studies. An example of this was the reasons a woman was to wear a veil. Now, she didn't necessarily agree with these rules, but knowing all of this would help her navigate her interactions with Muslims over the coming years. Now, the other thing I want to mention was that Stark was always meeting people of all kinds as she moved easily between the city's European elites as well as the locals. One interesting man she met was Captain Vivian Holt, who worked for British intelligence. Holt was 34 years old and a World War I veteran. He was tall and stiff and formal, very, very British. He was also a skilled linguist who knew 10 languages, including Arabic. His position made him one of the most informed people regarding the politics of the Middle East. The two would hit it off and Stark would fall in love with him. The only problem with this was that Holt was probably gay. We can put a pin in that story for later. Anyhow, Stark had been mapping out her trip to the Valley of the Assassins for months. Her plan was first to go to the ruins of Alamut, the headquarters of the Assassins, which was located in the valley. Along the way, she would try and find clues to the location of the lost fortress of Lamsar, a place no European had ever gone to. Freya gathered her supplies and provisions. This included mosquito netting and medical supplies, including quinine as malaria was common in the region. Stark also had the latest maps and the latest intelligence of the area, courtesy of her friendship with the aforementioned Captain Holt. Stark knew roughly where she was going, but it was all quite sketchy. There was an Alamut region and an Alamut river, but no other villages or markers. She knew that a handful of Europeans had been to the valley, but directions were vague at best. It was known to be south of the Caspian Sea and north of Tehran, but the area was filled with countless valleys and mountains, Mapping them was all still in its infancy. Her plan was to travel to Kozvin, about 375 miles or 600 kilometers, northwest of Baghdad, as the crow flies. From there, she aimed to cross the Taligan Range until she reached the Alamut River, and that's where she would find the Alamut Valley, which is the correct name for the Valley of the Assassins. But it was all pretty sketchy as to exactly where things were. Anyhow, the first leg of Stark's journey was going to be an easy one, a trip from Baghdad to Kozvin, and a stop at Hamadan in between. This was along well-established roads, so she would be able to do this in a vehicle. Stark gathered up her bedroll, saddlebags, and other belongings and traveled towards Kozvin with four other travelers. They rode along the plains of Persia, occasionally passing other vehicles. They reached their destination, Kozvin, without incident. There, Stark checked into the Grand Hotel to plot out her next steps. Now, friends of Stark's had sent messages ahead to their own friends to alert them of Freya's arrival. 
From them, she hoped to find information that might lead to the Alamut Valley. The people who met with Stark were mostly enthusiastic about her endeavor, although some looked at her a bit curiously, wondering what this slight woman was doing heading into the uncharted mountains of Persia. Another thing of interest was that Stark had been told that there was an old ruined fortress in the mountains that was named, according to people she spoke with, Lamsar or Lamasar or Lambasar or Lamasar. You get the idea. Where exactly these ruins were, no one really knew. But as she plotted to find the Valley of the Assassins, she knew she would have to ask around about that place. Otherwise, when Stark asked about Alamut Valley and Alamut Castle, well, she was going to have as good as luck as she could have hoped for. One of the people she met, Dr. Asad el-Hukama, told her that he actually owned the land that Castle Alamut sat on. And he had been there. The locals called it the Rock of Alamut, and his brother lived in the Alamut Valley, not far from the location. The valley, she was told, was difficult to find, but it contained many small villages. Would she like to arrange for a native of the valley to take her there? I can only imagine how stunned Freya Stark must have been. Perhaps she thought it was a scam of some kind, but everyone assured her that the doctor was legitimate. And so Stark said yes, she would love to have an escort to Alamut Valley, a.k.a. the Valley of the Assassins. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the northern mountains of Persia, somewhere, was the object of Freya Stark's journey. Dr. Hukama organized a small caravan to go to Alamut Valley, Stark along for the ride. The guide of the caravan was a muleteer named Karbali Aziz, who was actually from Alamut Valley. This was incredible to have an actual native to guide her. Aziz had two assistants named Ismail and the Refuge of Allah. In case you are confused there, yes, the second man's name is the Refuge of Allah which I think is kind of cool. Anyhow, Stark would pay four shillings a day for the service of the men. Also, there would be two others along for the journey. This included Aziz's mother, whose name is not mentioned, and his young son, Muhammad. The latter was deathly sick. Regarding the woman, Stark found her to be cheerful and friendly. As for the boy, she was concerned he was in the last stages of a fatal illness, saying, quote, I feared that we might have to bury him by the way, end quote. Stark gave advice on how the boy could potentially improve, but there was not much else she could do except for make sure that he got enough food and fluids. She gave him some biscuits and saw an improvement from that alone. The company rode mules, Stark's saddlebags filled with all of her supplies, including a medicine kit. She had packed the bags with almonds, raisins, lemons, and other edibles. 
As the caravan headed northwest, the Persian plains were behind them and the mountains before them. The mountains were filled with countless barren, uncultivated valleys. Some places were settled, but the villages were few and far between. Not much trade flowed through these mountain passes. As Stark and her company moved towards the mountains, the first village they reached was a place called Ashnistan, followed by Dasgird. These places were small and desperately poor. The land couldn't support many people, so they naturally spread out. Stark noted stunted vines with apricots and limited water sources. Most of the people Stark encountered had never seen a European before. They were friendly and curious, but wary. A mother hauled away her daughter when Stark tried to give her a piece of candy. She noted that these were devout Muslims, but simple and peaceful. Just surviving was a constant struggle for these people. By the way, I want to note that the journey that Stark was on at this point was not thousands of miles into the mountains, or even hundreds. From Kozvin, her starting point is actually only 50 to 60 miles as the crow flies to the Caspian Sea in the north. But the lands in between are rugged and dangerous and were woefully undermapped. But I wanted to let you know that this is not weeks and weeks of trudging across empty lands. I don't want to give you that sort of impression. Anyhow, the company pressed on through the foothills and came to a point where they had to head up into the mountains. This was the Chala Pass. It was a steep upward hike on narrow mountain trails, which zigzagged higher and higher, eventually reaching an altitude of more than 8,150 feet, or 2,500 meters. In the mountains, Stark found the only inhabitants were nomads and shepherds, the latter bringing their sheep up in the summer. They would, in time, see more travelers, including the occasional caravan of mules laden with rice brought from the Caspian Sea. The men, Stark noted, wore thick, heavy white coats and had trim beards. Like most of the people she encountered, they were friendly and curious about her. The caravan continued on, eventually reaching the back of the ridge they had just descended. Here they could look down on the region of Alamut. Stark wrote this of the event, quote, This is a great moment when you see, however distant, the goal of your wandering. The thing that has been living in your imagination suddenly becomes a part of your tangible world. It matters not how many ranges, rivers, or parching dusty ways may lie between you. It is yours now forever. End quote. I love that. The moment of your discovery. Others had been here before, of course, but it was the thrill of your own achievement. It is a glorious moment, and Stark's description of it is so vivid and so very human. So, from atop the ridge, Freya Stark surveyed the land before her. She could see the Alamut Valley, the Valley of the Assassins. Beyond was the great snow-capped mountain, Taktai Suleiman, a.k.a. Solomon's Throne, which looks down on the entire region. The caravan descended the ridge into the lands below, reaching Chala Village, a small place surrounded by cornfields and walnut trees. The walls of the valley rose up a thousand feet, or three hundred meters, on both sides. The people of the village were desperately poor. The homes were small, and she noted that the rugs were threadbare, if they existed at all. Still, the populace was hospitable, feeding and housing Freya and her company. Stark wandered the village freely, chatting with the curious children. Now, I want to mention that Stark had gone into these mountains with the best and latest maps, but she found that they were basically junk. Her maps had two mountains marked on it, but there were many more in front of her eyes. Rivers were simply not there, or if they were marked on the map, they did not exist in real life. It was terrible, and thus Stark was finding out the joys and headaches of becoming a geographer. There is an old joke that half the troubles of mankind are due to inaccurate maps, and Stark was beginning to believe that was true. The problem she found was that geographers were often too quick to label something and move on. What's that river, they'd ask, and they'd get an answer from a local. Well, was that the actual correct answer? Had the person understood the question? Naming conventions differ from culture to culture. 
The name assigned to a river by a geographer might actually be the name of the village or the region. Heck, sometimes local people gave false information just to throw off travelers who they thought might bring trouble. Patience, curiosity, communication, trust. Freya Stark used it all to become quite a successful geographer. In fact, some argue that the greatest accomplishment of Stark on this expedition was her extensive and accurate map making. She would show the local people her maps, and by talking to them, they came to understand what she was doing. Thus, she correctly named landmarks, and in time, people who knew what she was doing would come to her and volunteer information. After a night in the village, the company continued on to where they reached the Sharud, or Shah River. There were ruins of a brick bridge crossing the river. It was here that Aziz pointed to a stream flowing out of a dark and narrow canyon. This, he said, was the Alamut River. Stark understood how the entrance to the valley was so difficult to find, and even realizing that this was the mouth of the Alamut River, she would have had no clue as to how to go up it. Thankfully, Aziz knew the way. For an hour, the man led Stark on a climb up a cliff via a rarely used path. They went from boulder to boulder and then crossed over a ridge. Below them was the Alamut Valley, the Valley of the Assassins. The company would lead the mules into the canyon along a different, more dangerous route along the Alamut River, but eventually people and animals were on the other side. After going through the crossing, Stark understood how it was so difficult to find the valley for other explorers. Without Aziz, she would have gone right past the entrance. The next day, the caravan continued into the valley to the west, following the Alamut River, eventually reaching the village of Shutar Khan. This is where the brother of the doctor who had organized the caravan lived, and more importantly, this is where Stark got a look at the famed Alamut Castle, aka the Rock of Alamut, or Alamut Rock. Stark looked to the north, and what she saw was impressive, a rock base high up in the mountains. To reach the ruins of the castle, she would have to trek north for several hours, following the Khazir Rud, a tributary of the Alamut River. Stark quizzed the locals about the history of the castle, but they didn't know much beyond it having a long past. The next day, Stark would set out for Alamut Castle with Ibrahim, the chief servant of her host's home, as a guide. Riding mules, the group trudged up a trail to the ruins of the fortress. It was an uneventful journey. The fortress was at the top of a narrow rock base high above the valley below. Up and up, Stark went until they reached the windswept rock. She said it was a grim and desolate place. The fortress consisted of different levels, but most of it was in ruins. As she took in the legendary fortress, she could make out patches of stone and mortar, as well as the remnants of ramparts, towers, and walls. The lower sections were mostly inaccessible without proper climbing gear, which she did not possess. The place was covered in shrubs and trees as well as wild tulips. At the top, Stark and her party heated up some water and had a little picnic, including some chocolates she had brought for the occasion. Afterwards, they hunted through the ruins of the castle, collecting bits of pottery. She noted that it was from the 18th and 19th centuries, indicating that people had been coming to the ruins for ages. Stark and her party would thus conclude their visit to Alamut Castle and return to the village of Shuter Khan. The next day, Stark visited with the valley's only policeman, who was deeply suspicious of her motives. He even searched through her luggage and quizzed her about why she was there. As she had no ulterior motives, he found nothing. Stark and her party moved up the Alamut Valley. Some people came to her looking for medical advice as there was no doctor in the valley. Others just wanted to see Stark, who was a curiosity to most of the residents. In fact, she said that many people approached her almost as if she had some sort of holy association when word spread she had actually been to three of the four holiest cities in Islam. This was a great thing to people who might never travel more than a day's journey from the place they were born. 
As the caravan moved further on, they lost some of their number. The refuge of Allah left for his home, and in Garmrud, Aziz's mother and son would rejoin their families. The health of the boy, who Stark had feared would not survive the journey, had greatly improved. Aziz's wife, by the way, was furious at her husband for being gone for so long, as she had been left to run the family shop. Stark had found that the valley was mostly self-sustaining. Outside of rice, sugar, and tea, which was brought in from the Caspian Sea in the north, nothing much was imported due to the valley's isolation. It was in Garmrud that the valley narrowed considerably and the walls rose up higher and higher. It was here that Aziz pointed out a sheer wall that rose up 3,000 feet, or 915 meters. There at the top, he said, was Nevisar Castle, another of the assassin's fortresses. It guarded this end of the valley. And so Freya Stark added another sidetrack to her journey. The next day, Aziz guided her up to the top of the valley's edge to visit the ruins of the fortress. It was another steep and strenuous climb, but at the top, Stark was rewarded with some stunning views and the deep satisfaction of exploring the ruins. A search of the grounds revealed pottery shards, including some that dated to the 13th century. Freya Stark rested in Gomrud, where the people were friendly and welcoming, and then she headed north, climbing up and out of the valley to the Salambar Pass at an elevation of more than 10,000 feet, or 3,000 meters. After that, it was down the mountains and a short journey to the port of Shah Savar on the Caspian Sea. From there, Stark would make her way to Hamabad and then Baghdad. Her first journey into Persia was complete. But we don't want to forget that there is more to come in Persia. If you recall, Stark had come to the area intent on finding the location of the assassin fortress of Lamsar. She had gotten hints of it while in Kozvin, and while looking for Alamut Valley, she had asked those she had met about the lost fort, and she had had some luck. She was told that there were ruins to the west of Alamut in the Shah Rut Valley, but that area had been covered in snow at this time, so it was not a place that she could go. And so she was already planning a return to Persia. However, before that journey, it was back to Baghdad for Stark. There, everyone was thrilled by her return. I mean, people had thought she would never come back. Everyone loved her stories. And British intelligence was happy as well, and impressed at the detailed map she handed them. Captain Vivian Holt praised her for what she had done, citing her bravery and quality work. She loved the attention and recognition, and word spread that Freya Stark was quite good at this whole exploring thing. Her patience, tactfulness, and ability to connect had allowed her to reach a place that only eight or nine Europeans had ever been able to find. She had discovered her calling in life. From the Middle East, Freya headed back to Italy, where she found her mother managing the weaving factory in Oslo quite successfully. Her mother was, finally, proud of her daughter. After Italy, it was off to London for a time, and then in the fall of 1930, to Canada to see her father. After that, it was back to London. She would have articles published in a variety of magazines. In London, she met with a growing circle of influential people. Also, she dug into more stories about the Order of Assassins. One of the people she connected with was Sir Henry Lawrence, the current governor of Bombay, and cousin to Stark's friend, Venetia Budicom. Sir Henry loved all the work that Stark was doing on the assassins and introduced her to the Royal Geographical Society, a place that was not always particularly welcoming to women. But Stark was thrilled to find that she was welcomed warmly by the society, including Sir Arthur Hinks, the society's secretary. Hinks was impressed by Stark's work and offered to publish in the Geographical Journal a paper on the cult of the assassins, and he offered to support further expeditions to Persia. Everything she had wanted, recognition and success, was coming true. She was even introduced to the society's geographical experts who helped advance her knowledge of map-making. 
And so, in June of 1931, Freya Stark was on the move again, back to Baghdad. Her goal was to return to the mountains of northern Persia and find the lost citadel of the Order of Assassins. But that will be for next time. And there's lots more, too. In addition to that adventure, she will try and climb Solomon's throne, as well as go on a treasure hunt in Luristan. So lots of fun ahead. One final note before we wrap up today. I want to mention that while Freya Stark had visited the ruins of the Assassins' castles, some have since been renovated and are now tourist attractions. This includes Alamut Castle. Today you can drive up along a winding road for an hour and then climb hundreds of steps to reach the fortress, which is in the process of being renovated. I mention this because some, but not all, of the places that Stark describes in her books are quite different than what she had experienced. Anyhow, that is it for today. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Join us next time for part three in the story of Freya Stark. Thank you very much. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other shows, including Nature Nerds and Southern Gothic. Saving money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options. In stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at the French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.